Welcome to National Parks Traveler, where we explore the national parks and the issues that involve them. Majestic wildlife abounds across the national park system. You can see wolves, grizzlies, and bison in Yellowstone, California condors at Pinnacles and Grand Canyon, moose in Voyagers, sea turtles at Cape Hatteras and Padre Island, and elephant seals at Point Reyes National Seashore, just to name some of the possibilities. This is Kurt Rappencheck, your host at the National Parks Traveler. Another charismatic species in the park system, but one you're not likely to see, are panthers, also known as mountain lions, pumas, or cougars, depending on the region of the country. These are big, stealthy cats, most often on the move after dark, which is why you're not likely to spot one. South Florida is best known as the home for the Florida panther. Another reason you might not spot one of these cats is because there are so few of them. Conservationists at the South Florida Wildlands Association fear the population of the iconic Florida panther may have dwindled to as few as 100 individuals. They don't know for sure, though, because the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service has not released a species status assessment and population count since 2009. And without current information, the fight for the panther's existence and efforts to curtail development that threatens it are more challenging than ever. In this week's podcast, the traveler's Lynn Riddick speaks with the executive director of that organization to hear about their latest efforts to address the assaults on the panther's habitat and their approach in protecting this incredible endangered creature. Lynn will be back in a minute with Matthew Schwartz. Washington State is graced with three spectacular national parks, each different and special in their own unique ways. As the official nonprofit partner and the only philanthropic organization dedicated exclusively to supporting these parks through charitable contributions, Washington's National Park Fund has a mission to raise private support to deepen everyone's love for, understanding of, and experiences in Mount Rainier, North Cascades, and Olympic National Parks. Share your passion for these parks at WNPF.org. Maximize your savings with Interior FCU. Explore the benefits of opening multiple certificates to diversify your savings strategy. Discover how Interior FCU's range of certificate options can help you achieve your financial goals with competitive rates and flexible terms. Learn more at interiorfcu.org. Federally insured by NCUA. The Grand Teton National Park Foundation is a private, nonprofit organization that supports projects that protect and enhance Grand Teton National Park's cultural, historic, and natural resources. By funding initiatives that go beyond what the National Park Service could accomplish on its own, foundation donors improve the visitor experience and provide benefits to the national park system for decades to come. See their successes at gtnpf.org. The Yosemite Conservancy helps visitors connect with Yosemite through adventures, volunteering, and the arts. It's the only nonprofit dedicated to supporting Yosemite National Park and funds grants to improve trails, restore habitat, protect wildlife, and inspire the next generation of nature lovers. Learn more at yosemite.org. Population growth land management policies, and invasive species all continue to make life difficult for the endangered Florida panther. Much work is being done on its behalf by the South Florida Wildlands Association, and here to tell us more about that is Executive Director Matthew Schwartz, who offices in Fort Lauderdale, but today is calling in from Brazil. Hi, Matt. Welcome to The Traveler. Hi, Lynn. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Well, first, let's get started with an overview of your organization. What can you tell us about it? Well, the organization was founded in 2010 by a small group of like-minded folks who wanted to have an independent, small uh, nonprofit that would be activist and be able to respond very quickly to all the threats that come into South Florida um, in terms of uh, the things you mentioned, habitat, loss, uh, sea level rise from climate change, invasive species, uh, management of public lands. Things come really quick here. And sometimes large organizations 
can't really respond quickly enough. They're kind of like big buildings. I always thought of it as like driving a big building down a highway. Um, I was a volunteer for a number of years with the Sierra Club. And a lot of these organizations do good work, but uh, there's a little difference between a local, small grassroots organization and how we're able to respond to a lot of these threats. How many folks work there? So we have a small board. Um, I have volunteers that do work. We don't have, I'm, I guess, the full-time director, and it's sort of as needed. We don't have a large staff at all. Uh, my most important people are lawyers, environmental lawyers, who either help me with lawsuits or things like uh, letters to agencies where there are legal issues involved, the number of lawyers involved, uh, scientists as needed to fill me in on uh, a lot of the journal articles that deal with the health of Florida's wildlife. So we're a small organization and we draw in a large pool of people as needed. What would you say are the top threatened and endangered species that your organization is uh, most concerned with? We are laser focused right now on the Florida panther. And that doesn't mean that our only concern is the Florida panther, but the habitat that the Florida panther occupies, there are public lands in there, important public lands, including the western part of Everglades National Park, the Big Cypress National Preserve, the Fakahatchee Strand Preserve State Park, and the Picayune Strand State Forest, among others. Um, this is an incredibly biodiverse ecosystem that's still pretty much intact, unlike the Eastern Everglades, which everybody always hears about Big Sugar and Everglades restoration. And that's because the Eastern Everglades has been channeled and canaled and diked, and it's just nothing like it used to be. The tree islands are all gone uh, because of water management and artificial water management. The tree islands were dry areas in the Everglades proper, that vast savanna-like landscape that people are familiar with in the Everglades. The tree islands were the places where wildlife could live. They were high and dry. They were above the uh, kind of the floodplain. And those are largely gone now. The Everglades is just a fragment of what it used to be. The Western Everglades does not have that same kind of, has not had those same kind of impacts. So when we talk about terrestrial wildlife of the Everglades, whether it's raccoons, panthers, black bears, uh, Eastern indigo snakes, crested caracaras, these are going to be found in the Western part of the Everglades. So we're really not talking about a huge area. We're talking about an area bounded by the Everglades to the east the Southwest Florida metropolitan area, the two cities that most people might know of is uh, Naples and Fort Myers. So that would be the west side of it. To the south is Everglades National Park. And to the north is a place called the Caloosahatchee River. So it's kind of a rectangular shaped block of forest and wetlands, uh, a lot of agricultural areas in there. But you know, if you had to, you could walk across it in a few days. So, and that's the breeding habitat of the Florida panther. So what I'm really trying to get at is the panther is an iconic species. It's a Florida state animal, but it's also called an umbrella species, meaning that all these other animals live within that same habitat. So while we're talking about the panther as our famous iconic cat symbol of wild Florida, we know that we're protecting all the other species that live in the Western Everglades. And there's a lot. If you can protect the panther, you can protect all those other species. Is that what you're saying? We can protect all of it. We can protect all of it with, by protecting the, ha the habitat of the panther. And it's not just the animals. There's been studies done in the Big Cypress, which is the most famous part of the Western Everglades, the Big Cypress National Preserve, that biodiversity in terms of plants, it's equal to all of Everglades National Park, probably twice the size. But by itself, Big Cypress is over 700,000 acres. Everglades National Park is 1.5 million acres. And then the other ones are all connected. They're all interconnected, one big green splotch on the map. And it's a lot of land. It's a lot of land. Um, but by protecting the panther, we protect lots of native plants. We protect all these native animals, many of which are endangered or threatened or state-listed as species of uh, special concern or state-listed as threatened. Almost every animal that lives in Florida is on the brink in some way or another, some closer than others. But yeah, you, you, the panther, we're protecting a lot. Yeah, the panther, like you say, the black bears. Um, what are some of the other very well, threatened panther, or endangered? Okay, so the panther uh, is an endangered species. The Florida black bear 
was delisted from the endangered species list some years ago. I think it was 2014. I fought very hard to keep the black bear on the endangered species list because all we have are these isolated pockets of black bears throughout the state. So even though there's a black bear population, the last estimate I think comes from about 2015 of 4,000 animals. They're spread out in these very small geographically and genetically isolated pockets. And we thought that the black bear not only should remain on the state list, but it should get federal protection, at least as a threatened animal. That didn't happen a couple of years after the state delisted. They did a bear hunt and they killed two, three, over 300 black bears in two days. Um, it was pretty sad. Um, but there was this notion that black bears were overrunning the state and people wanted a chance to thin the herd, as they said. We were able to stop that the next year, subsequent years, along with many other people um, who were appalled by the hunt. I mean, admittedly, the, a lot of the resistance was more about the hunt than the habitat loss and the habitat fragmentation. But I tried to make that argument. I consistently made the argument that we don't need a black bear hunt. Hundreds of bears get killed every year on roads in Florida. And another large chunk of bears are killed by what they call management, which is euthanasia of what they call nuisance bears. Mm -hmm. So people build near bear habitat, one of the public lands. Bears come out of the public lands, following their nose to people's garbage, to barbecues, to anything. And bears have uh, a sense of smell far better than bloodhounds. They can sp they'll smell food and their noses will lead them there. That's what they're that's what they do. And there are interactions sometimes and people complain. And if there's dogs around that could start off a black bear and could lead to an attack on the dog or even on the person walking the dog. And those things happen. So we we keep telling the authorities don't build in bear habitat, you know, because you're going to have incidents, um, but they do it. Other species, we could spend a long time talking about eastern indigo snakes, the largest non-venomous snake in the United States, crested caracaras or a falcon-like animal that kind of has the behavior of a falcon and vulture combined. They hunt, but they also eat carrion and anything else they can find. Uh, there are bald eagles, although those have been removed in the, in the habitat. Um, there are just many, many gopher tortoises. A lot of birds are state listed, the little blue heron. Um, tricolored heron, birds like that. Um, croco American crocodiles are not really in the uh, panther habitat because American crocodiles are also on the endangered species list as a threatened species. And the Everglades is the only place in the world where the two species live side by side, crocodiles, American crocodiles and American alligators. Panthers go wherever they can. I mean, panthers are cats. Anybody that's had a cat knows how a cat behaves. They're curious. They like to hunt. They, the panthers obviously need to hunt. They eat what they kill. They don't eat garbage. They eat what they're able to kill. And they'll move around and look. Um, but uh, they seem to have figured out where they're safe right now. Your organization just released a statement saying that outdated reporting on the status of the panther by the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service is part of the problem. So tell us a little bit about that. How far behind is the Fish and Wildlife Service reporting, and what's at stake here? Well, we think that they're behind on a number of things. We picked out the five-year status review just to explain a little bit of what that is. So every endangered species gets a five-year review. And it's not that five-year review is basically determined if it's getting the correct level of protection. So the three possibilities when a five-year review is done is an endangered animal like the panther could be left on the endangered species list. The service could say, well, it's doing better, so we won't delist it. We'll move it down to threatened. And the big difference between a threatened and an endangered species is that take and that means harm to the panther or its habitat, is more flexibility for the threatened species, whereas take for an endangered species is supposed to be off the table, but it's not. Or so they can leave it as endangered, they can bump it down to threatened, or they can remove it from the list entirely. And one of the things with the panther, and here we're going to get a little bit into the history of the panther and how a panther gets to South Florida. 
So the panther, Florida panther, is the local name for a puma, cougar, mountain lion, which at one time, and it still is, the most wide-ranging mammal, I think, in the Americas period. Panthers range from, I think, the Yukon in Canada all the way down to Patagonia, Argentina, and Chile. That's quite a range. It goes through all of the Americas. Its population is spotty because, obviously, development and other issues, but mainly development and roads, is taken away puma habitat everywhere. In the eastern United States, it's taken everything. So there are no, there is no breeding population of mountain lions anywhere east of the Mississippi. People will say, no, there are pumas or mountain lions in Vermont or New Hampshire or wherever they say we've seen them. Occasionally, rarely, pumas do go outside of the western U.S., often from the Dakotas. So there's a few that have showed up, I think, from the Dakotas and Tennessee. Um, but the panther is the Florida panther is the remnant population of pumas that once covered the entire eastern U.S. from Manhattan to Miami. You know, there were panthers all along the coastal islands. I mean, along the coastal ridge, we call it the Atlantic Coastal Ridge in Florida. They were found in Lake Worth. I mean, documented everywhere. And now they're relegated to this little patch of land in southwest Florida with the big cypress and Florida Panther National Wildlife Refuge, Fakahatchee being kind of ground zero for them. Um, it's just not a lot of land. And the thing is, their family dynamics is a male cougar, puma, Florida Panther, will have a harem. He'll have a number of females that he allows into his territory and is his breeding, is his breeding territory. A female kitten born to one of his females could stay closer to mom. A young male has to find a new territory because dad will kill him. And all the good territories within that um, block of land we're talking about in Southwest Florida are taken, it's a full house. So the males roam and they go into suburban residential areas. Some of them have crossed the Caloosahatchee River and getting into central Florida which there's not a whole lot left in Central Florida for them. I mean, we're getting into Disney and I-4. There's the I-4 corridor. Everybody knows the I-4 corridor, and they think that it's I-4 going from Tampa to Daytona Beach, going straight through Orlando. Well, the I-4 corridor is much more than the I-4 highway because it's one of the fastest growing areas in the United States. It's a huge belt of population cutting across the entire peninsula of Florida. And it forms a pretty difficult obstacle to any animal trying to move from the southern half of Florida to the northern half. And the northern half is less populated and probably has some better opportunities for panthers. But the Fish and Wildlife Service has uh, basically decided they're not going to relocate, translocate panthers from South Florida to places like the Ocala National Forest or the Okefenokee Swamp at the Florida-Georgia border. They think there's too much risk. People don't, there's no social acceptance for people moving cougars into their territories, afraid of their pets, their livestock, uh, their kids. So that's out. So it leaves the panthers that live in Southwest Florida and those that can move across the Caloosahatchee River into Central Florida. And that's happened. That's happened that some males have gone in there. There's been evidence of females. There's even There was even evidence of, uh, I think, kittens being born north of the Caloosahatchee River, but no evidence of any recruitment. In other words, no kitten born north of the Caloosahatchee River has become part of an actual breeding population of male and female panthers north of the Caloosahatchee River. It's very hard for that to happen. The development pressure is huge, the highways um, and Panthers have big ranges, and when a female is feeding, when she's feeding her kittens, she needs a lot of deer. The less deer, the less prey, the further she has to roam. It's very, very hard to get that population a new home outside of Southwest Florida. We've been trying, and we've been saying for years, and scientists have been saying, it's not just us. I mean, there have been studies on the panther habitat landscape of the Florida panther, and it's pretty much unanimous amongst scientists that whatever is left, whatever the carrying capacity is of that block of land in Southwest Florida, it should not be compromised at all. Nothing. Leave it alone. 
and they've come up with these schemes. They'll say, well, we'll develop these thousand acres and in compensation, we'll leave these 2000 acres alone. And a lot of people get, oh, we've saved 2000 acres. Well, before, if that development was a thousand acres and you're putting aside 2000 acres before there was 3000 acres, and now there's 2000 acres and a thousand acres of dense development. And that thousand acres of dense development means lots and lots of cars and lots more vehicles and road widening. So it makes Southwest Florida, I always picture it like a, uh, I used to play pinball. I like pinball. <laughs> I picture it like a pinball machine for Panthers. And those Panthers are pretty smart to actually even still be surviving in Southwest Florida, but they may not be. They may not be surviving for much longer. This is Lynn Riddick, and I'm speaking with Matt Schwartz of the South Florida Wildlands Association, and we'll be back after this short break. Listener and reader support make National Parks Traveler possible every day of the year. If you enjoy the Traveler's content, please consider a donation via nationalparkstraveler.org. The Blue Ridge Parkway Foundation is the primary nonprofit fundraising partner for the Blue Ridge Parkway. It is made up of people who have a deep love for this majestic road and want to ensure that its natural beauty and the experiences it offers endure for generations to come. You can show your appreciation at brpfoundation.org. Whether it be strategy, business planning, change management, board development, executive search, or diversity planning, Potrero Group is here to help. They mix a depth of experience in the parks and land space with a breadth of best practices from other industries. For more information or to schedule a preliminary conversation, go to potrerogroup.com. P-O-T-R-E-R-O group.com. Acadia National Park is one of the 10 most popular national parks in the United States. It is also one of the smallest and most vulnerable. That's why Friends of Acadia exists. Friends of Acadia is an independent organization of passionate people, inspiring those who love this magnificent park to make a real and lasting difference for Acadia. You can make a difference too at friendsofacadia.org. Full of stunning photography and thought-provoking reads, Smokey's Life is a biannual magazine produced by Great Smoky Mountains Association. Members receive it free of charge each spring and fall, and it is available for purchase in retail stores throughout Great Smoky Mountains National Park and online at smokiesinformation.org. The Everglades Foundation, the only organization whose sole mission is to restore and protect America's Everglades. Learn more at evergladesfoundation.org. I'm back now with Matt Schwartz of the South Florida Wildlands Association. Going back to this overdue report on the status oh, yeah. of panthers, when was the last time you saw a report? Mm. So the last report was done in 2009. So it was a five-year report done in 2009. The new one was due in 2014. So it's 2023. That report, five-year status review, is due it was due in 2014. It's nine years, uh, nine years overdue. But along to, to write that, to write a review on how the panther is doing, they have to do a population count. And that was the part of it that we thought was most important because we are very worried about the current status of the panther. Usually by this time of the year, somewhere around 18, 19, 20 panthers have been killed by roadkill. Now that's a bad thing. We are always on, we're always sad when the panther gets killed. But in a way, it's a way of knowing how many panthers are out there. Roadkill is a legitimate way of counting panthers. This year, we've lost six in the first half of the year. That's a dramatic decline. So that may be evidence. I'm not saying it could be a coincidence. That it's definitely not a factor of drivers suddenly driving much, much better and more carefully. But suddenly, there's a dramatic drop in panther roadkill this year combined with some other factors that we should talk about, like the Permese python and the uh, feline leukomyelopathy, a new disease, along with the habitat loss. So we're not sure, you know, we think that the panther may already be in what the Fish and Wildlife Service calls jeopardy, meaning at risk of extinction. And wow. an animal in jeopardy gets no, that you cannot do any more development in the habitat because that's take. You can't just develop the habitat. We should talk about that. It gets a little complicated, but 
you know, when you develop, yeah, you can't shoot legally, you can't shoot a Panther. You can't put rub, you know, paper clips in a rubber band and shoot, you know, that's harassing. You shoot them with a, you know, paper clip, rubber band, whatever. But you all, there's also protection for the habitat. Anything that keeps the Panther from living its, its normal course of life is take. And at a certain point, you reach jeopardy. You reach the Panthers in jeopardy of extinction, at risk of extinction. And a jeopardy ruling should keep them from developing any, any more of the habitat. It's not, and I don't know if we have enough time <laughs> to really get too deeply into that, but there's, we are aware of over 30,000 acres worth of projects coming into the habitat right now. That's a lot of land. It Washington, sure D.C. is, is 45,000, 30,000 acres. And lots more behind that. Lots more behind those 30,000 acres. Well, I guess I'm curious as to why it's taking so long for a fresh report to come out and in, in what the legal requirement is to publish something like that. Well, I think when we had, a, we had, we did have a meeting with them soon after because that was not just a letter. I mean, that was the letter accompanied a petition to the Fish and Wildlife Service by South Florida Wildlands lawyer to say, you're overdue, you need to get this done. And immediately they had a meeting with us and said, we're going to get it done by the end of the year. We're, sh we're shooting for the population count because you can't do a status review without a population count. We'll have the population count by the state FWC by the end of the year, and we'll move quickly to the five-year review and also what's called the species SSA, the species status assessment, which is a more complex document, um, but that's definitely got to be done too. They need to do the SSA, Species Status Assessment, the five-year review on the listing status, and the population count. We've got to do it soon, but you know we're pushing them on that because it's coming due at a time. I mean, how could agencies, whether it's the Florida DEP, whether it's the Collier County Commission, the Lee County Commission, the Henry County Commission, any of the local or state or federal agencies that are permitting habitat destruction, allow that to happen without the feds telling them what the status is and telling, and they have the ability to enforce the Endangered Species Act and enforce the take prohibition and tell these developers, hey, you need to get what's called, I, I knew this was gonna get complex, but stop me if it goes off the rail, um, an incidental take permit. That's the only legal way of getting uh, taking out taking out habitat of an endangered species, you've got to get a habitat conservation plan that shows that uh, what you're doing is going to protect the species, and that has to be approved by the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. In return of which, you get what's called an incidental take permit. It's called incidental take because it assumes that developer is not trying to kill panthers. That's not their that's not their purpose. They're trying to build homes. And incidental to that, they're destroying panther habitat. But to do it legally, you have to have an incidental take permit. And they were on that road to get that for at least 45,000 acres of this new development that's coming in uh, up until August of 2022, when the developers called the Eastern Collier developers were doing a multi-species habitat conservation plan in this area we're talking about, Southwest Florida. And they quit. They just quit in August and decided, you know, it's taken too long and it doesn't look like you guys are going to go along with us. So we're just going to quit. And that's what they did. And that's where we are right now. And we're not only pushing the feds, the Fish and Wildlife Service to come up with the new five-year review and species uh, status assessment, but we're also pushing them hard to demand that these developers either get an, an HCP and an ITP, Habitat Conservation Plan, Incidental Take Permit, or back off. Um, and exactly how that's going to play out, I'm not 100% sure. I got to be honest. I mean, I have a great lawyer, but he can't do this for free. And um, I don't have, I'm not a wealthy guy. So the kind of money we need is the money we need to do federal lawsuits to do these things. And unfortunately, when the Eastern uh, Collier property owners dropped out of that habitat conservation plan for 45,000 acres. It put us in a situation where now each development is coming in by itself and it's going to get approved or not approved by itself. I have to say the entire approval process is different now 
because I think it was a couple of few couple of years ago that the the end of the Trump administration that authority for wetlands permitting in Florida was transferred from the Army Corps of Engineers to the Florida Department of Environmental Protection. That means that, and all these properties we're talking about have wetlands on them. But what that means is that the permits that came from the Army Corps that used to trigger consultation with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service because they were federal permits that created a federal nexus is no longer there. The DEP, Florida Department of Environmental Protection, hands out state permits. So right away, the consultation from the Fish and Wildlife Service dropped considerably to just technical consultation, and nobody really even knows what that means. It's surely not a full-blown biological opinion. Then, on top of that, we got the recent Supreme Court ruling, which said that wetlands need to be directly connected to navigable waters. Well, these are wetlands in the interior of Southwest Florida. They flow through the limestone and through marshes and swamps to navigable rivers like the Caloosahatchee River, but they're probably gonna lose wetlands determination. In which case, it's just a vacant lot. They won't even get state permits for wetland destruction. It won't trigger any consultation from the Fish and Wildlife Service. So at the same time that the panther is getting, is really under the gun, we're going down to minimal protection from the federal government, the agency that uh, is in charge of protecting uh, our endangered species and our endangered panther. Yeah, I wanted to ask you what your relationship was with the uh, Fish and Wildlife Service and whether you felt like you are being heard. That's a good question. We know them well. We have had many meetings with them on every level. And it's been there's been a lot of communication. And I will tell you that my feeling, and I'll kind of paraphrase a part of the interaction from our last meeting, um, we were told that, you know, Matthew, we feel the same way you do. We are deeply concerned about the plight of the panther. And my response to that was, you know, that's great, but you're not an academic institution. You're not a, you guys are not professors. You run a federal agency with powers that a small organization like South Florida Wildlands Association does not have, and you have authority to do them to do something. You're a regulatory agency. We want you to regulate development for the protection of the Florida panther and the other endangered species throughout Florida. People in Florida, I would say, this cuts across every political line that could exist. People do not like the growth that's happening here. We are growing tremendously. I mean, I've been in Florida since 1995. Um, I have seen it. I'm an old timer. <laughs> I mean, I'm feeling like an old timer in Florida. Um, the growth is incredible and nobody likes it. I mean, it's, yeah, obviously the wildlife, water resources, the wetlands, the fish, the hunting, everything, everything is down. But, you know, the people who just want a quality of life, the people who live here also don't like it. So everybody kind of agrees that this is not a good thing. Even the Fish and Wildlife Service agrees this is not a good thing, but they come across as more powerless than they are. They could do more than they're doing. They could insist that these developers go back to the Habitat Conservation Plan. And if it's not approved, it's not approved. And they don't, they don't build. Then they can't build their dense developments. We're talking about moving so many people. And so, you know, not just, it's not just the habitat laws. It's so many people and so many cars coming into the habitat. I, I can't imagine the panther surviving um, what's on the horizon. It just, it, it just won't. So going back to the news release that you put out about the outdated panther reporting, that said that vast swaths of the panther's primary zones in Everglades National Park and the southern section of Big Cypress uh, National Preserve barely support panthers anymore. So why is that exactly? Okay, so that gets into the old population estimate they've been using, uh, the 120 panthers to 230. That's the current number that is, is, is issued by the FWC, the Florida Fish and Wildlife Commission, and the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. Was that in the 2009 report? Well, that was that was done after the 2009 report. That population count was actually based on uh, minimum, a minimum count of panthers done in 2015 to come up with that 120. And then the 230 number I, I described as pie in the sky 
because it's based on taking the very best habitat, which is the Florida Panther National Wildlife Refuge, which was designed for really just for the protection of the panther and its habitat and extrapolating that to the whole of the primary panther habitat, which goes from the very bottom of Everglades National Park up towards the Caloosahatchee River. But I would say the lower half, the, the bottom half of that habitat barely supports any panthers at all anymore. And it never was good for panthers to begin with. I mean, a lot of times people, they love to look at pictures of panthers kind of prowling through the swamp. But Florida panthers would be much happier in the mountains outside of Atlanta, high and dry, with a lot of deer, uh, wherever they could find it. I mean, the entire landscape has changed everywhere. The Southwest Florida wetlands are what was left to them. So as they were killed off by bounty hunters, and there was a bounty on Florida panthers, um, and driven away by housing and roads, uh, those are the three things that basically destroyed the habitat in the eastern U.S., habitat loss, roads, and bounty hunting as a varmint. Uh, panthers were relegated to this poor habitat in southwest Florida. The vegetation is all wrong for deer. Um, it never really was good for deer. And that's what was left of them. So to extrapolate from the Florida Panther National Wildlife Refuge, a rare high and dry place that's really off the uh, grid in terms of human uh, human activities, although that's changed a little bit, but not too much, and extrapolate that small piece of land, it's like 20 something thousand acres, to the whole of the planter habitat and say that's how many panthers there are, that, would, that could hold 230 with the same density. It's ridiculous. It's taking a small swath of the habitat that's really good. So that's why they use that as a maximum. But we don't believe there's anywhere close to 230 panthers. How many do you think uh, there are? Any, any idea? I think that the lower number, 120, is was probably closer to reality from the beginning. Um, and I think it might be, unfortunately, it might be under 100 right now with, with only six panthers killed by now. In the middle of the year, it was a January, February, March, April, May, June, July, seven, one was done with seven months and six panthers killed. That to me is a ominous indication that the panthers might not be making it. We don't know how many panthers are being killed by other panthers and what's called intraspecific aggression or by the python. So one of the reasons that Everglades National Park no longer supports panthers is because it doesn't support any mammals anymore virtually. The python has overrun Everglades National Park, Burmese python, these pet pythons that were brought in and released. There was a big breeding facility and homestead on the edge of Everglades National Park that was destroyed by Andrew in 1992, and that gave it a big boost. A big number of, of pythons escaped that facility after the hurricane. Um, and the pythons have overrun Everglades National Park. They eat everything from the smallest mouse to deer. The big ones eat deer. The big the big ones they're pulling out of the big cypress right now are 18 feet long. They're 18 yeah, feet Yeah, I, I saw a news report, uh, I don't know, last week about um, some people that had found a 20-foot long Burmese python. And, of course, hunting of those is allowed and encouraged, correct? Oh, yeah. I mean, it's, yeah, it's encouraged. But the problem is... People are only going, I mean, they're not walking in the interior of the Big Cypress. They're driving on levees, on old buggy roads, you know, we call them swipe, swamp buggy roads. They're going up to, in, they're going through accessible parts of the Big Cypress and Everglades National Park. Most of it is pretty inaccessible. Most of it is just really dense, uh, dense vegetation and water. Um, some places be water up to your neck, you know, depending on how much rain we've had. Uh, people aren't going in there like that hunting pythons. They're mostly staying along the levees, and that's where the pythons are being caught. Nobody thinks that the hunting is going to stop. I mean, it, it could put a little dent in the population growth, but I know that the python is expanding. I mean, I keep looking at the reports. Um, we had one of the crew lands recently north of the panther refuge. I was at a meeting at the ok Coochie Slough State Forest. Uh, not too long ago in this year, and they're finding pythons up there way north of the Big Cypress. So the python is an out-of-this-world, or at least out of you know our continent, uh, snake. It's a beautiful snake. Um, it's not even doing well in its native Southeast Asia, because people have been hunting them and for their uh, skins and 
capturing them for the pet trade, exotic pet trade. Um, but in Florida, they're flourishing. And unfortunately, it has no natural enemy other than, I guess, alligators when they are of the mind to go after one. You know, it's a tough uh, fight for them. Uh, they'd rather take a fish or a bird. And um, they are excellent at what they do. I mean, they don't move. They look just like the Everglades, kind of a mottled green, brown. Uh, when you see them, usually you see them dead on the road. It's a lot easier to see them there. Um, but when they're curled up in the greater Everglades and the big cypress, they're practically invisible. And animal comes by and they launch. They bite the animal and throw their coils around the animal and it's over in no time. And then the animal is constricted by the snake, dies from the constriction, not just suffocation, but a complete lack of blood flow through the animal, turns the animal head first and swallows it. It doesn't, the bottom jaw doesn't connect to the top so they can open up that mouth wide enough to actually engulf a deer. And uh, they're good at what they do. I mean, it's no hatred to the snake, but there's no reason why. And this was known for decades before, I think it was in April, 2021, that the Florida uh, Fish and Wildlife Commission finally put the python on the state's prohibited list. Meaning you can't buy and sell, you can't breed these things, you can't, you can't own them anymore. Um, they're, they're considered a Florida prohibited species, but it took decades from when the problem began to when they acted. And that would have been, you know, it's just a horrible problem because there's really just no way to get these things out of there. Um, it's a nightmare. It's a nightmare. Shifting gears, oil exploration and production are big issues in areas of the Everglades and Big Cypress. So tell us what the latest activity is going on now. Well, there's been a number of attempts during the time that I've been working in the ecosystem to open up new drilling, and I'll just list them. I mean, um, the first time I got involved was a company called the Dan A. Hughes Company, and that goes back, I can't even remember now, towards the very beginning of my organization, which was founded in 2010. The company leased about 100,000 acres to start drilling right next door to the Florida Panther National Wildlife Refuge which we've been talking about, people can find it on a map, and in an area in between the refuge and a rural area called the Golden Gate Estates. And they had leased 100,000 acres from a company called Collier Enterprises. And you might recognize the name from Collier County. So Collier Enterprises is the uh, part of the company that owns the family's mineral holdings in Southwest Florida. And they own about according to their, their records, about 800,000 acres. That's a lot of land. 800,000 acres of mineral rights, some of which they own the surface rights. Sometimes they only own the mineral rights, like in most of the big cypress. They own the mineral rights underneath the park. Right, because the, the federal the... government doesn't own the mineral rights in they never uh, bought it. Cypress was... or Everglades, right? Right, anywhere, anywhere. They, they don't own the mineral rights, and the Colliers own the lion's share. So they've been leasing, they've been leasing those because they're not an oil company. What they do is they lease the oil rights. Um, they get money for the lease and I don't see their contracts, but I assume they're also working off of um, royalties on any you know oil that's found and taken out of there. I don't know how much they make. So there are two ongoing oil fields inside the Big Cypress National Preserve, one in the Northwest corner in a place called Bear Island, which is very, very important to panthers and the remaining deer that are there. And then the other one in the southeast corner, much closer to Miami, called Raccoon Point. Raccoon Point has like five oil pads with numerous oil wells on each pad. And that's where the lion's share of um, oil is taken out of the Big Cypress. But in the entire history of oil drilling in southwest Florida, something like 120 million barrels of oil have been taken out. That's just not a lot. I mean, compared to production elsewhere, it's what, you know, from the 40s till 2023. But if you multiply it by the cost of a barrel of oil, it's a significant amount of money. And these are small, you know, these are, you know, small uh, drillers, producers, et cetera, that are doing the leasing. So anyway, um, just to backtrack, I got involved when the Dan A. Hughes company leased these 100,000 plus acres and we're trying to put a... Um, well, right next to the Panther Refuge, and I sued. I didn't, at that time, I had no money for a lawyer. I sued by myself. I actually became my own lawyer. 
and my own witness as well. I was my lawyer. I was the lawyer client and expert witness on the whole thing. Um, we didn't actually win the case, but it was so aggravating, it seems, to the NAU's company, you know, which is a driller out of Texas, and they drill all over the place. They quit right after the trial ended, before the judge even released his final decision, his uh, recommended order. They quit. So that was the end of Burnett. Uh, or rather, Dan A. Hughes. I'm, not, I'm sorry, not Burnett. That was a Dan A. Hughes company out of Texas. The next one was a company called Tokala. And Tokala leased another 100,000 acres north of the Big Cypress into really good, really prime panther habitat, real uplands in these ranches and part of the Dinner Island Wildlife Management Area, which is very, very important to Florida panthers. It has probably one of the better populations of deer left in South Florida. And they were going to do a kind of uh, vibration. They were going to do what's called, you know, the geophysical, uh, where you look for the oil using seismic uh, vibrations. And in the case of uh, Tokala, they were going to put pentalite, something like dynamite, in shot holes and blow it up. Thousands and thousands of these shot holes filled with pentalite uh, ignite the uh, the explosive and then listen to the vibrations to try to get a 3D picture of what's going on under the ground. That's how oil companies work these days. I mean, if you look at old, you know, pictures of oil fields, you'll see holes being drilled everywhere. Yeah, I, I wanted to comment that, you know, uh, a crew from National Parks Traveler uh, took a look at an exploration site in Big Cypress a few years ago and uh, they found like pretty large areas of down trees and vegetation, yeah. and big truck wheel ruts and compacted soil. And it was pretty much a mess. So, you know, uh, you know, I wanted to ask you about reclamation. Is that happening after some of these well, companies have come in? Well, that was right. That was the third one I was going to talk about is Burnett. So, so, so um, Dana used quit. And then we actually did some litigation with, um, Tokala, who also ended up quitting. So those two quit and they were going to do the, the shot hole blasting. Burnett was driving over those things with these gigantic vibro-sized trucks. So instead of putting shot holes in the ground, these massive 60,000 pound trucks would drive through the Cypress, drop a plate down, lift this truck off the ground and shake the ground. And that was the vibration taking the place of a shot hole. And then that vibration was picked up by the sound recorders or, by, you know, that would pick up the uh, the vibrations from the vib vib vibrating truck and try to get a 3D picture of the uh, preserve. Yeah, I mean, those vehicles driven through a wetland are going to have damage. They're going to they're going to clear the vegetation. They're going to compact the very fragile wetland soils of the Big Cypress. I mean, they're they're considered unconsolidated soils. It's not like soil in Iowa or something like that. When those soils are wet, you can dig them up with a plastic spoon. And they were driving these massive trucks through areas they should not have been driving through. And they probably did leave lasting ruts, which they say they're in the process of reclaiming. But I should add, after they completed the vibrosize testing in a part of the Big Cypress, the company, Burnett Oil, did apply for permits to drill in Raccoon Point, near Raccoon Point, which I mentioned, and another one right in the middle of the preserve, right south of I-75 through an, in an area called Mullet Slough, another wetland. And that would have involved much more than just, you know, driving these trucks through a wetland because it would have to build an oil pad, like a five-acre pad. You'd have to build an oil road. And that would have meant hauling in all, you know, fill material to build a road in the middle of a wetland. And, and so what's the latest with that? What happened with that? Yeah. So what happened with that was very good. The National Park Service said, well, we're going to have to do an EIS. We're not going to give you we're not going to give you an easy permit on this one. You're going to have to do an we're going to do an, an environmental impact statement, which is a long process. They haven't even begun it. So that one is currently on the shelf. I haven't heard anything they're announcing the beginning of the environmental impact statement or the process of writing one, which begins with scoping comments received from the public. It's just been, you know, it kind of it's not dead. I think that they will be back. Maybe at some point they'll start that process of the environmental impact statement and the research involved with that. But so far, it's on the shelf. I mean, glad we don't have to look at that right now with everything else going on. Matt, thank you so much for your time today. Really appreciate it. So please keep us posted on your progress and successes. 
And we'll look forward to seeing the newest report on the Panthers uh, from the Fish and Wildlife Service. Okay, good, good talking to you, Lynn, and uh, we'll try to get some more information to you soon. That's our show for this week. We hope you enjoyed it. We have one correction for last week's show on national park expansion and biodiversity. In that story, we quoted the president and chief science officer of the Yellowstone to Yukon Conservation Initiative. Her name is Jody Hilty, which we got right on the first reference, but botched her last name on subsequent references. We apologize for the error. Finally, during the month of August, we're asking for your help. For the past 18 years, the traveler has been out front on stories such as the hundreds of millions of dollars Booz Allen Hamilton is raking in from Recreation.gov. Two senators cited our story in their letter to the Secretary of Interior asking for clarity on those fees. We also broke the story of vandalism at Joshua Tree National Park back in early 2019 during the partial government shutdown, and CNN, The Washington Post, Popular Science, and other major outlets quoted us on that story. Our coverage of oil exploration at Big Cypress National Preserve was cited by the Miami Herald. We've covered the plight of feral horses at Cumberland Island National Seashore, explained how the national park system protects biodiversity, went off the beaten path to explore Tallgrass Prairie National Preserve, dug into the history of Camp Nelson National Monument, and told you how the management of the Glen Canyon Dam holding back Lake Powell is impacting archaeological sites in Grand Canyon National Park. And that's just a sampling of our coverage. We're out front with these stories because we focus on national parks with journalists with decades of experience, not robots. That's why we have nearly 2 million readers per year and just went past 640,000 podcast downloads. So please, take a minute and help us keep our stories coming. If our work is important to you, please support us with a tax-deductible donation to the National Parks Traveler, a 501c3 nonprofit media organization. You can find information on how to donate at nationalparkstraveler.org at the top of the page. Thanks in advance for your support. For The Traveler, this is Kurt Repencheck. See you in the parks. Composers and musicians at Orange Tree Productions have created a unique collection known as the National Park Series that has grown to include more than 30 CD titles. Composed against the backdrop of a park's sounds of nature, these musical scores will connect you with these beautiful places and take you there, at least in your mind. This collection is the number one selling National Park audio series in the world and provides the background music for National Park's Travelers podcasts. Visit them at orangetreeproductions.com. Editing and production work for the National Parks Traveler podcast is done by Splitbeard Productions. You can learn more about us at splitbeardproductions.com. National Parks Traveler is a 501c3 nonprofit media organization that provides daily editorial coverage of national parks and protected areas. Traveler's coverage is made possible by reader and listener donations. Visit us at nationalparkstraveler.org.